CorporalNetwork.com. This episode of The Tome Show is sponsored by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon store. Welcome to the Tome Book Club. The Tome is a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm your co-host, Jeff Griner, and in each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related novel, book, whatever it is, spoilers be damned in full book club style, and our book for this month is The Complete Kobold Guide to Game Design, and we read the second part. Uh, last month we read the first part, this month we read the second part, and also, I had a little conversation with the author. Oh, Wolfgang? I did. It was super fun. He's a nice guy. Uh, although, I missed the actual discussion, right? Uh, how did that go? Uh, that went pretty well. We had uh, Andy and Eric on. Very cool. And I didn't, I, haven't, I don't know that I've talked to Eric since Gen Con. He's a good guy. And has, yeah. an, and has an accent. Everybody always loves it when we have people on with accents. Of course. Awesome. Uh, well, we don't want to take too much time on the intro. Okay, and I'm here with Andy and Eric, and we're going to talk about the Complete Cobalt Guide to Game Design, the second part of our series on this. So, th- this part was mostly, we did ch- from chapter 18 on, right? Yep. Uh, and it's a lot about talking about enhancing adventures and writing, pitching, and publishing. I felt like there's a lot, particularly in the enhancing adventures part for DMs. What did you guys think? Um, I, I kind of found it to be um, mixed. That there were certainly some articles that that were squarely aimed at, at GMs, and of course there were others that were squarely aimed at designers. Right. And, uh, there's some overlap, but uh, overall it was really kind of mixed. I think. Yeah, I can see that. Well, the first section. Before they get to the publishing part, which is the last section, felt more towards GMs and game masters, but also some designers, because game masters tend to always design too, but just for a smaller audience. It was a mix, but mostly games was good. Yeah, what I liked, I liked. I remember when I when I read it uh, the first time a while ago, and, and definitely when I reread it. Uh, thinking about the different types of adventures with like city how a city versus wilderness versus the underdark uh, sort of thing works um, I found that really useful to me as a, as a new DM uh, considering how how those adventures will all be different and, and how to set them up and stuff and has for an experienced DM it also has some very good tips and of, of how to think those and ideas that maybe you didn't think about it because you've been doing so long this way and now oh it's a different perspective on how to to do this this. so like okay cool right yeah i I I certainly got that as as i was reading through the chapters you know each each one would would create a new idea in my head of an adventure to right do you guys remember the monster hordes chapter uh talking about how to deal with large numbers of combatants? Yes. I, I found that one interesting given some of the stuff from Caves of Chaos in D&D Next. Where you need to handle big groups and and stuff. I've done it before for various systems, but it's always good to see 
how to handle that and their their uh, little trick that they had for D&D that they provide on page 137 one stands for many mm-hmm. can be useful for an EGM to try to basically speed up the flow and the pacing of of a combat versus hordes. Yeah, well, and because I know when I was I was running my D and D next game, we tried. I I was doing theater of the mind, and one thing I, I realized was once I got over a certain number of combatants, it was very difficult for me to keep track and to keep conveying to the players all the information. Like not all, but enough information that they felt confident and comfortable being part of the scene. So I think I think one one stands for many would help there too, maybe. This is one of those chapters where I, I actually had this idea in mind beforehand, but wasn't sure how I would handle a mob or a horde like this. And, and then coming to this chapter, it, it, this actually showed me the way. Right. Uh, and then I always love adding things like noir and stuff like that. So the next chapter was uh, hard-boiled adventures. I also I like that a fair bit, too. I, yeah, that's something I hadn't even thought of till I read that chapter, is, is mixing that stuff in. Yeah. Mixing different styles. Yeah, like the crime, you know, the, the, the old Pulp Fiction crime type stories. Although, um, when we read the um, Eberron stuff, <laughs> uh, we, we got kind of a taste of that, I think. Yeah, there's, there's a fair bit of that in Eberron, uh, I think. And Eberron was meant to be... Uh, m- more cinematic, I think. Like more, cinematic, more pulpy. Yeah. In style. Um, reading it made me remember of adventures I've run in other systems like Call of Cthulhu, Spirit of Sanctuary, which are all pulp style already. So going back, reading that and how to apply to, to other games or even D&D. Yeah. Well, well, and then like the Arabian Nights one, which was a chapter after that, I talked a little bit about how the the adventures aren't don't it's not always necessarily mechanical to bring the flavor out. Like you can have you you can have these settings without the, the mecha- without there necessarily being different mechanics for them, I guess. Yeah, a, a way of reskinning what's there already. Right. It, it's more about uh, how things are described and how uh, um than how they're statted out. Right. Yeah, the flavor is always important in the game to put in. Right. Well, there's Arabian or mystery or pulp or horror. So. Yeah. And then I, I saw that chapter 24 is the Mystery of Mysteries, which was big for me because I actually run, I ran at DDXP and then at a convention I was at this past weekend, I, a mystery scenario in 4E. And so I liked reading it, and it was interesting because the one the one trick that I kind of do, this still cl- uh, cleaves pretty heavily to the D and D tendency to roll for things like roll for clues and things like that, where I kind of run the mystery part a lot of times as a, a, a lateral thinking uh, puzzle, which is basically you start with a scenario and the players start asking questions, and usually in the lateral thinking puzzles it's a uh, it's a yet they have to ask yes or no's, no questions. But I, I allow a lot of things, and then I decide how much information they get sometimes by die roll, or just based on their skills, like who gets what clues. But I love running mysteries. 
mysteries are fun to run and add a little filth, but you always have a balance of how much you're going to give out for clues to the players. And right. sometimes that essential clue that is there, are you... Yeah, they might just they just might not get it that night or or that session, and that's that's an important one. And then, and the other reason, and that's why I say like I don't I try not to tie the clues too much to die rolls because if they fail a die roll, then they're not going to get the clue, and then the the whole story just stops. And they talk about that a fair bit in here. Yeah, one way or another, you got to get the clues to the to the characters. Right. Sometimes it's their interpretation of the clues <laughs> that can go. Yeah, because uh, I. I ran the the adventure I ran this weekend had um the town is basically accusing the baker of being the murderer because everyone had eaten something that he had baked before they died which in a small town where you only have one baker and everyone likes bread it is a pretty <laughs> like it's going to happen they're going to eat something of his um but the one of the players wanted to do a bake off to see uh, testing out different ways of making the cake to see if one of them matches the, the cake that they found next to uh, the dead person as a way of trying to solve the, the puzzle. And I thought that was pretty cool. It's a different way of doing of, of resolving the mystery. Right. <laughs> or at least getting clues of where to go. Right. And that's the thing is you can always... Re- I, there's no reason not to do that that sort of uh, event, and then you can give them at the end the clue that points them in the right direction. If that's not if that wasn't the right one. With the next few chapters, was there anything in with the uh, using and abusing misdirection? It was humor and misdirection. Right. I love humor in my games. I do too. I humor, I think, is great. I like the humor that comes up around the table during the game, but. Usually the stories I come up with don't lend themselves to humor within the game too well. Oh, yeah? I, I don't know. I, I tend to go for more quote-unquote serious stories, <laughs> uh, you know, save-the-world type stuff. And right. So, so something like um, like Gamma World is just way too silly for me. You know, right. You know. Would you ever do something like uh, have characters n- named Hans and Franz? For, uh, uh, I... I I did have a couple characters with silly names, but uh, usually that's because I can't think of names. Right. So the first sound that comes out of my mouth becomes their name. Right. Yeah, I, I, I may do it too much sometimes, but I, I, I will put popular culture references uh, in my games, and or like have um, have the the assistant be named Igor and have him be hunchbacked a little bit and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So small, small humorous stereotypes that we know, but done well. And the, the small little humor things, I, I think, are something I, I, I probably do let into my games occasionally. But it's it's the ones that are just flat out silly, like I said, like Gamma World or Paranoia or something like that. I just can't run games like that. I, I, I right. don't know what to do with them. The games I run, they the silly tends to go in there. Like I have a yearly superhero team where they're under the, based on the new UN and the group decide to call the team the World Task Force. Abbreviation WTF. <laughs> nice. It's a play on words. It's a play. So it works and it's fun. So. 
But I, I think the article does kind of, um, it, it goes over that, I, I think, pretty well. Yeah. Um, I, I think the long and short of it is you, you got to kind of judge your group by how much humor they want in the game and around the table and, and what the division is. Right. Yeah, and then you were in the... You were in the episode 200, right, Andy? Yeah. Where we yep. had last week. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, which I, I, going in, I, I wasn't, uh, I didn't have a clue what to expect, so. Yeah, no. Um, and then there's the the misdirection part. Uh, that one I liked. Uh, misdirection's always fun for me. Right. Usually I use it because I'm not sure exactly where the party should be going next, so I give them this direction while I figure it out. Because <laughs> usually when I GM, it's a lot of from-the-hip type stuff. Right. Yeah, I do a lot of that, too. How about you, Eric? I Most of my games are improv. I tend to often come to the game with a blank sheet of paper and just start from there and head, head out and players see my notes because I don't have any notes. I just go in with a few keywords and just head out. So misdirection, I sometimes do it, but not as often. Right. Do you find a, do you find there's a particular reason why you would want to do it in your game or? Misdirection would work my most for dependent on the characters. If there are rather deceitful types of bad guys, mm-hmm. would tend to try to deceive someone. Show show something when something else is happening. Right. I've, I've done that a few times based on the characters because I tend to try to work on character centric games. Mm-hmm. Where I have the NPC and all that. Okay, this is his gold. But wait a minute, he wants to distract and make sure that the players think that something else is happening. Okay. <laughs> right. Do that while he's doing this, but then you have to give enough clues that this is a misdirection. Because if you do too well a job, the players will not know. Right. That it's yeah, a they'll be completely derailed. Yeah. And, and I found that players are often are looking for misdirection, and... That's one of the things that sometimes trips me up is because uh, I'm not necessarily as well-versed in the historical D&D knowledge. So I will accidentally do something that doesn't make sense to them because they remember five years ago when they were in a similar adventure that uh, this other thing was the answer. Or a god, a follower of a particular god would never do that sort of thing. So they think I'm doing misdirection when really it's just my game world's different. And players, they'll, they'll latch on to everything. I mean, yeah. they, every word that comes from the, the GM's mouth, it has equal weight to them. Right. So yeah, you might be just throwing out just a description just to set the mood, and, and they pick one little thing out of there and say, ah, that's the that's the treasure. That's what we got. That's what we're here for. Right. When I had one time, they uh, decided that they wanted to go to this bad guy's house that they, they knew lived in town, and I hadn't expected expected it. But they, they thought this was a big, important thing. And they were telling me all along that they, they were expecting to be misdirected. They are like, there's going to be some creature there. And and, and I just gave in to them. And I, I was like, okay, fine. There's mimics. Like, I created mimics on the fly that were in the house. Because it was so clear from what they were saying that they actually really wanted that. Like, they wanted to be surprised. and Like, they wanted to know. They didn't know, know what was going to be the gotcha. But they expected there to be one. 
Yeah, reverse they wanted direction. Yeah. Sometimes it's nice for a player to say, "Ha! I was right." <laughs> right. Even though you just they provide you that information already, and like you're just feeding up on them. Yeah, and it was funny because like they they had um. They got into the guy's office and they thought the mimic was going to be... They, they were pretty sure there was going to be a mimic. So I was like, okay, fine, there's a mimic sort of thing. I didn't tell them that, but in my head. And then they were sure it was going to be like the desk or something and I made it the chairs. So that the arms of the chairs grabbed up, like, grabbed them. And they're like, this is great. And then, uh, and that kind of goes into uh, stagecraft a little bit too, which was another... Stagecraft. Yeah, that, that closes out the enhancing adventures section, and 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 I was just gonna say that, that this um, this is one I'll probably go back and read a couple times. Yeah. Um, uh, there, there's a lot of information here about structuring. Based on stage and plays and all that. Yeah, and actually, there um, it's not, I don't know if it's referenced in here. I don't remember seeing it. Uh, but there's a really good book by Robin D. Laws called uh, Hamlet's Hit Points that also talks about uh, story beats and structure of story and stuff that I found found a really great read. Um, so after the... Is there anything else you guys wanted to talk about with the Enhancing Adventures part? Um, I think I'm good. Okay. Uh, I think uh, we're on to the writing, pitching, and publishing, which, which is interesting to me. I, I mean, I'm in a position where you know I've been in the same job forever and ever and ever, and I, I've really been thinking a lot about completely changing careers and th- th- this whole section gave it had a lot of food for thought yeah um and so the, the first part is the, the three audiences part which also feeds into like the humor and everything else because you're talking about um in this particular section they're talking about how when you when you write the adventure you, you have to think about the different people who are going to make the decision as to whether or not it ever sees the light of day. Uh, and it's, it's the reverse order that most people would, would think, you know, if you ask somebody off the street. I mean, you're, you're not, the adventure's for the players, but you're not really writing for the players. Right. Because at the end, there may be an occasional adventure where players all know about it and really want to play it, but a lot of times it's a DM deciding what they want to run, right? Yeah, and, and before the DM can get his hands on it, the editor needs to... Uh, edit it and publish it. Right. Yep. yep. You have to... The various levels of who to please to be able to get your product out. And with that, we just spoiled the whole article. That's fine. This is a book club. Spoilers oh, be damned. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I didn't hear the... the uh, oh, sorry. ...follow to that. <laughs> yeah, Spoilers no, no. be damned. <laughs> Talk... <laughs> You know, well, that's that's the twist, the big twist in the middle. <laughs> and so the next one is uh, shorter, faster, harder, less. Um, Which could also be called practice, 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 practice. Right. Yes, it was good. Good to read about how to do the pitch for sending up the information. Right. Not, not- just the pitch, but how to compress your text in general. Yes. Yeah. Not how to self-edit yourself so that your your end work, you know, fits the word count, but fits as much, you know, pack, packs as much bang into that word count as, as you can. Right. And and talking about things like it, detail is is big because 
uh, like you were saying with with naming things, sometimes you, you pick silly names because that's the first thing you happen to think of. When we don't give in adventures, if we don't give those sorts of details to the DM, they're forced to try to create that on the fly. And it's even harder for for people who are, I think, in my opinion, for um, doing a published adventure because you didn't necessarily write it. You're, you're not as in touch with it. Uh, and you may not have read the whole entire thing at the point when you... When, or at least in the type of depth you would need to know, you know how to name something. So- Names are important for, for folks to identify and be able to place. Wait. Actually, I put the question out on Twitter, actually, about, um, you know, DMs who, uh, who DM on the fly. And, um, you know, what, what do they need for NPCs? And, and it was almost always names. Right. You know, they, they don't need characteristics. They don't need, you know, stats. They, don't, they just need names. <laughs> I know that's what I need. I'm terrible at coming up with names on the fly. Uh, I'm terrible too. My my group has, I've noticed a few times. My group has caught me where I would present a character, uh, name them Lucas, and then like 15 minutes later, I introduce another character. I name him George, and people's like, "What, George Lucas? Did you make that purposely?" <laughs> no, it just. So it has happened to me several times in different games and with different groups. But some of the people who are constant among my groups right. point out, so it's like, so yeah, it's been a running joke in our group. Yeah, with my group one time, I decided in advance to name the whole town John because, as a joke about me having terrible naming habits, so everyone was named like John, John Johnson. <laughs> John. <laughs> that reminds me of but the game. The game uh, Bard's Tale computer, where there's a town where all the characters are named, I believe, Bode. <laughs> so. Not all of them. Not all of them? There's one guy that has talked to named Bode, but there's six of them. Oh, okay. Sorry, there's six Bode. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe the other Yeah. So. But, you know, writing shorter works. And then uh, there's a whole section on sandboxes. I love sandboxes. That, that was interesting because um, Jeff's taken us through the um, Gradmore, Graymore, Gradmore Abbey. Uh, Gardmore? Gardmore, that one, yeah. <laughs> it's an abbey with a name, starts with a G. Right. Well, watch his big sandbox adventure. Um, yes. I was able to instantly relate uh, the information here to what we're, what we're playing. Yeah, well, and I worked on uh, Lost City, which was a sandbox adventure, and, and we, we we went through a fair bit of this. And trying to understand how, you know, s- sandboxes don't have necessarily a predetermined plot, but they still have a story to them. There's mm-hmm. still stuff going on. Yeah, basically having an underlying story which the players can go and discover when they want, or if they don't care about the story... They go do whatever they can, but it's still occurring there and developing as they're doing their stuff. Right. And, and I think more than any other article in this book, this is the one article where I could picture myself, ha- if I had the time, sitting down and, and actually following the advice in this article to, to create something. Um, 
which is to say I'd probably create a sandbox type adventure if I if I were able to. As in had the time. <laughs> right. Uh, the, the advice in here was pretty clear on, you know, which directions to take for that. Right. And and they gave like pitfalls and everything else too. And then collaboration in design, which is pretty much about working with other people. Which is something I believe you did, uh, Tracy, for the last setting? Yeah, we had a work, uh, I think there was five of us, um, and we had to work on all our sections of the city and our monsters and everything else, and, and build up a uh, a story of, of what happened to the city and why it was there. I can't give spoilers for that because we're not... <laughs> we're not reviewing that one? Yeah, we're not talking about that one. When I bought the book, I bought the Lost City and Courts of the Fae, and so I have them with me. Oh, nice! At one point, so like, hey. Um, I think one of the interesting things for me was talking about the know your design strengths and style part. Uh, just because there are definitely things that are easier for me to work on than other things, and I, I like teaming up with people where we complement each other well. Yeah, I, I kind of always thought that if I were going to work on a creative project, I, I'd want to collaborate with somebody until I wrote, read this. And <laughs> there's a line in there about, you know, if you don't have a strong enough ego, you'll just collapse and, and cr- into a little ball and cry. Yeah. And that, that's me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I forget, because I think they mentioned it a few times in the book overall, talking about the importance of ego in design. Yeah. Because you, you gotta have a, a big enough one, but not too big. Right, exactly. Because because you need you need to be able to pre, uh, believe in and present your ideas, but at the same time you need to be able to take criticism and work with other people's ideas in an in like almost like an improv way to build them up into something even better. Uh, and I I like the little section about uh, critique with kindness, revise ruthlessly. Which in a way. It's also a concept that you can bring to game mastering because as a game master, you have your idea of your internal plot, but all the players are putting their idea in to, into it, and you just have to make it all become be- better. Right. Well, and, Eric, and you were talking about Eric that you often start, I think, with without a lot. Uh, you kind of go on the fly, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's all about listening to what your players are presenting as story ideas and kind of uh, picking the ones that also appeal to you and bringing them out a bit, I think, right? Yes. It's all about uh, the improv yes and question. <laughs> Sorry. Right. So. And then there's um, an article about the myths and realities of game balance by Monty Cook. Which, um, after you're done reading that article, you're like, well, yeah, duh. But before reading it, you, you, you probably wouldn't think that has to say. Right. Yeah, because it talks about things, too. Like, a really, really good GM, somebody who, who understands the game well and uh, has confidence in themselves, can can create a game where you can have a first-level farmer and a 20th-level demigod. Those are the examples he uses. Uh, and, and you can have an adventure and everything where both of those people... Uh, have things to do and maybe even have things to do within the same encounter and and feel empowered with what they're doing but it can be really difficult to <laughs> to do that i've ran a organized play 
RPG adventure once, and there was a group of level one characters, and in this case, I think it was a level ten character, and they were going to a burning house. Oh, so they actually split the party, where the <laughs> high level guy just went flew up to the top of the house to look, while the, the lower level just started walking up the to go rescue the wizards familiar. So they basically, I was able to balance out the encounters where the high-level guy would face a more challenging stuff because he's by himself, while the low level, lower level, when he got to middle, got to a more balanced middle of what to, what them to face. Right. So. Yeah. I, I like how he, um, how he discussed how, when he worked on 3rd edition, how the game is basically intentionally unbalanced because, in favor of combat. Right. Um, because there's there's all these you know chapters and chapters of rules about combat, and when it comes to lock picking, there's what two two skills you can choose to to pick locks. <laughs> right. No, exactly. Yeah. And I was also just thinking about this uh, in terms of Lord of the Rings, talking about because I mean game balance is kind of a, is a very nebulous concept concept, and it, it often just comes down to not being a jerk sort of thing and making sure everyone has a time to uh, to shine. And if you think about uh, in Lord of the Rings, when uh, Merry and Pippin end up in the in the forest with the treants, like that is very important to the overall story, even though it doesn't necessarily look uh, outwardly as heroic as uh, making your last stand against the oncoming orc invasion. <laughs> but it still becomes very essential for helping out as right. the, the ants come to rescue those who are making the last stands and Helm's Deep. Right. So. So yeah, so that in a way is also, overall, the storyteller has balanced out the story, right? Like, they're still incredibly important in the story, even though at the time maybe it looked like they're just wasting their time or uh, we're doing something very small compared to... And that, yeah, and yeah, that's the kind of the point of the article is that the GM ultimately balances is the one who balances the game by giving each player time to shine at the table. Right. Because that, I mean, that's what everybody's there for. Everybody's there to have their little time in the sun and and enjoy the game. Right. And so a lot of it's a lot of being a good. GM is just understanding what it is that motivates your players and make them feel like they're they're shining because it might not always be killing the big bad guy. It could be something else too. Yep. Knowing when to move the spotlight around. Yeah. To, to get. And that comes up a bit in the next chapter too, the pacing chapter, right? Yes. To know when to pace to to when to get them various moments in the game the dramatic moments to happen at a proper time and also with combat oh go ahead Andy yeah, it's, it's interesting how um, you know it comes right out uh, and says, I think this is uh, one of Wolfgang's articles, because there, there's no byline here, um, that I mean, a pacing really is not a design element. Pa- pacing is how, basically, the, the DM presents it and the players take it. Right. Um, I, I think the, the takeaways here are, you know, if you got yourself a four-hour block of time, you, you don't run a four-hour combat, and you, you don't, you know, do a four hours worth of 
worth of in-character role-playing, unless you got a really particular group. Right. And that was always one of the interesting things to me about, about fourth edition stuff was I, f- I found it much easier to kind of uh, project or predict how long certain things were going to take with my group. And and now that we've switched over to DD Next, I found it harder to, to make those uh, predictions. I don't know. Different games have different uh, pacing and or how long things take and how interested players are in certain uh, elements of the game. And once you change the rules set, it takes a few sessions for the rhythm to, to settle in. Right. Yeah, Lots of different role-playing games have different rates for stuff to happen or where are the most important parts and most not so important to do. And one thing that I, I personally I found that helped me to to set up pacing was convention games where you have a specific slot where you have to finish so you learn really quickly how to (laughs) go through like introduction up to the climax and then finish off the the adventure or try to (laughs) yeah the convention games help a lot with that yeah and I know I I'm constantly during a convention game when I'm I'm DMing, looking at the time to to and seeing how long the current stuff took, so I can predict out how long they're probably going to take on the next thing, and then what stuff to cut or rearrange. I, I'm always doing that on the fly during conventions. Um, not conventions, but for your regular weekly gaming group. This had a great idea because you don't do cliffhangers in conventions, right? Right. Had a great idea for, for a cliffhanger that I, I don't know how many players would, you know, uh, what does it say? You you hear the last of the shadow phase arcane speech. Okay, next time we'll roll your saves and saving throw against it. <laughs> how many players aren't just going to pick up the die and roll it right there? Come on! <laughs> I, nope, nope, next I have to lose cliffhangers several times in my games. They're fun. And they, the players go and they, they curse your name or shake their fist at you for like ending it right there because they want to continue with the story. But oh nope, next time. Next time. Yeah, and and they even it, he even says that it probably uh, increase attendance the next week because <laughs> people want to know. Yeah, and of course it depends why your players have an attendance problem. Yeah, yeah. My attendance problem is usually directly related to work, so. Right. No control over that. Uh, and then chapter 34 is about playtesting. Is there something you've done with the stuff that you've uh, published? Uh, I've done some playtesting, mostly on my smaller adventures. I didn't... Uh, we didn't do as much on Lost City uh, because of time. Like, other people were supposed to do a lot of playtesting, but I've done playtesting on, on, on things like uh, Sickness and Springdale. Yeah, th- th- this particular play t- article is... And the overriding theme of the whole book is really aimed straight towards the D&D playtesters. Right. I mean, sure, you can take some ideas off to other games, but it's it's got all the verbiage and everything in here for, for D&D playtesters. Yeah. The, the, the details is for uh, D&D players, but the general themes that they talk about can be applied to pretty much... Any sort of a game. Yeah. Yeah. And basically, playtest. Playtest often. 
Yeah. No, playtesting often is great. One of the difficulties for um, designers is like they don't necessarily have multiple groups. So sometimes playtesting the same thing with the same group doesn't work too well. Um, or even time. Or even time, yeah. Mm. Uh, and it also, the other thing is, it, it's very useful to get somebody other than the writer to playtest. Because, like, if I run an adventure I wrote, um, that doesn't necessarily tell me how well it's written. Because I I know the adventure so well that at the table I can easily fill in whatever I, I want to or feel I need to. Uh, and maybe not even notice that I'm doing it. <laughs> So, uh, so having other uh, other DMs run it is is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Basically, have if possible. I've heard designers what they do is they tend to have someone else run it while they're on the side with they're with they're taking notes of what's happening, you know, listening to what's happening, and oh, if there's an issue, right? It's there and. The game master who, if he has issues, the designer is there and can ask questions, which if the, the, the game master is asking the question, then it's something to note and say, oh, yeah, I need to work on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's very similar because uh, I do, I'm a web, uh, web developer uh, as my day job. And f- at one company I was at, we were doing user testing where we would have somebody sit down and, and use the website and it was very informative watching somebody uh, try to use your website in front of you because you're just like, because you give them tasks of what to do, like, how do you add this to your shopping cart or something like that? And you know the answer and you're like, why can't you just figure it out? And and it, it can be frustrating, but it's, it, it's very informative and uh, humbling <laughs> to, to see that it, no, in fact, it, when people who are brand new see it, uh, it's often more difficult than you think it's going to be. Uh, and then there's the art of the pitch, which is actually a fairly long chapter for the book, I think. Yeah, yeah it is. Well, for, for the third part of the book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow, it is long, isn't it? I didn't realize how long it was when I was reading it. <laughs> It's, but the but the pitch is, is the, um, kind of the most important thing, right? It's what gets you the job, right? Yeah, if, if you're gonna if you're gonna actually be a publisher and not just a, a GM who creates stuff, right? And it, and I think it's cool to some things. Some sometimes I've I've read people's pitches and they can be a little long without like pitches really need to to pop. Like you need to know you need to get an idea right away. Of uh, of what it's supposed to be like, your like the elevator pitch idea where you, you just gotta hit hit right away with. This is the this is this is what's awesome about this idea, and this is why you're gonna love it. Well, yeah, to combine this with what we learned back in in twenty nine, the shorter, faster, harder, less. Right. Yeah, the, the two kind of go hand in hand. Right. Uh, and then and the other thing is like your pitch is. It's not just about the idea; it's about also showing that you can write that idea and that and that you're capable of writing. Um, because sometimes I know, like they get they get multiple pitches like that with the same general idea, and they have to if they're gonna go with the idea at all, they have to pick between the people. Do they mention about when pitching to the editor 
like if you're doing a mystery, to still reveal the mystery to your editor. Yeah. So, so remember at Gen Con, I participated in a listening to one of Wolfgang's uh, uh, seminars, and he mentioned that about when you're doing a pitch and you're saying that there's this mystery, well, don't hide it from when you're saying the pitch. Right. This is one of the articles I reread earlier today, and and and, and no, that it didn't say uh, that kind of detail. Okay. That um, you know, if if you got a big you know twist or a big plot point or or um, a mystery or something that, that you spell it out for the editor, it, it actually didn't mention that. Yeah. But that well, does sound like good advice. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what they were saying at, at the seminar because if you're saying, oh yes, I have this like fabulous, awesome mystery to seek and twist. Well, if you don't show it, okay, well, we don't know. <laughs> right. Like, show it to me, I'll decide how interesting it is, and <laughs> no we'll accept or not. So. so, yeah, definitely. And then, so the next chapter is called Failure and Recovery. Fail early and hopefully not too often, but, <laughs> but recover from it. Yes. Because everyone's going to fail sometimes, like, that just happens. The goal is when you when you get beat up, you don't start looking down. You still look up and you continue on. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's one of those messages that transcends pretty much anything. Right. And then the next one is uh, why writers get paid, which I've always found to be one of the most important <laughs> chapters in the book. Because um, I... I mean, most most of us have have written at least a little something, if it's not on a blog or or we do this sort of thing. Um, but the 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 big thing for why why writers uh, get paid is because by by the time when you're you've done your third or fourth or tenth revision, you start to really hate it. <laughs> yeah, th- this is the chapter that really de-romanticizes right. writing. And that's why they get paid is because you still have to do it. You, uh, if if you were a blogger, like, like if it were, were something I'm writing for my blog, it'd just be like, okay, you know what? It's 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 a blog. This is more meant to be uh, my ideas. I try to make it well written, but it doesn't have to be perfect. But when you're talking about an adventure or something like that, somebody's gonna read and try to run. It's got a different standard, in my opinion, and uh, at least. You have to keep working and reworking it until it until it really shines. But or until you get too close to your deadline that you have to hand it in. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he talks about that a little bit because yeah. very rarely are you ever going to be a hundred percent happy with a manuscript, and there are times that it's just it's got to be pencils down. And more of that comes in the next chapter. Yeah, the talent won't save you, uh, and they go through a bunch of different scenarios that uh, can really hurt you. Which boils down to, you know, keep your editor, keep your editor or publisher in the loop. Yeah. You know, a- a- any, anything, even, you know, an hour late, as soon as you know, let, let them know. Right. Keep the communication open. <laughs> yeah. Build a relationship with your editor. Yes. Uh, and then the magic bullet for publication. Uh... Talking about how to break into print or pixels. Okay. Uh, I mean, there's some information there. It's a pretty short. Yeah. 
when they talk about difference between electronic or pixels, it all depends where to go. And then the last chapter is uh, Creative Mania and Design Despair. Uh, and this also ties into the why writers get paid part, because I, mean, I, I don't know about other people, but whenever I get the new idea and I start working on it, I, I'm full of all this creative energy and I, I can't wait to keep writing about it. Uh, and then as I start to get to the, the problems that I didn't see at first, uh, all the little bugs I have to work out of the writing, it starts to get to despair. It's like, I can never get this all to work. You get frustrated and you're like... <laughs> right. That's when you decide how far you're supposed to to go and continue and re repair all these little mistakes or little errors or stuff that's not working down. Right. And he mentioned, they mentioned something in the closing it down with ease or rage section uh, that I found very useful uh, that I haven't seen in a lot of different places when I'm writing. Because we were talking about names earlier. Uh, when I'm writing, sometimes if I, if I can't think of the perfect name or detail, uh, I kind of get hung up on my writing. And... There's a suggestion, the place marker suggestion in uh, TBD or name here, stop gaps that he, he mentions as shortcuts that I think are really good uh, for people to know about if they don't already. Yeah, that, that's um, a technique I've heard of before. Yeah. yeah. This is the first time I heard about it, and it was a very, it's a very useful tip of like that way you don't stop your production you're just okay boom mm -hmm. can't think of it put it put in some it. kind of a unique tag that right. you can easily do a search on and i know um for i think it was for wizards uh w one of the things that they often will put they'll put something at the beginning of those tags that uh would probably never appear um to make it easier to search for it in a dollar sign because because yeah. dollar sign usually is not going to be used in fantasy writing Mm -hmm. That is the book. So, what did you guys think about it overall? I liked it. Uh, of course, whenever I read a book like this, uh, all I want to do is take a year off work and uh, <laughs> start writing and game designing and getting all the money in from that that is allegedly happening in game design. <laughs> yep. I hear you there. <laughs> Yeah, I have a I have another book I want to read too. That's uh, that's more of a introduction to game design. It's not just tabletop RPGs, but card games and everything too. And I, I just want to spend a month reading the book, but also going through all the exercises and 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 doing it. Well, I like the book too. It 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 gives different perspective. And also, for someone who's interested, also in the industry, it gives them some tips of where to where to go and how to do it that you're considering and and demystifies that what some folks might think right. the whole game design is that it's not not just all fun and cupcakes and all that it's it, there's lots of work yeah there's definitely lots of work and uh and and a lot of maintaining relationships and everything like that too and i find that with tabletop rpgs it's such a 
like many of the companies are relatively small and it's so decentral it can be fairly decentralized depending on on what it is you want to write that it, it can be a bit um yeah like mystified like you're saying like you're not quite sure where to go or what to do or I, I like I know when I when I was blogging and people were like you should pitch and I had no idea how to write it what a pitch was or how to write one or anything like that so I found the book helped a lot helped me a lot with that too now would we recommend this to somebody who has no interest in publishing professionally but um, is more interested in the um, the game master craft I would recommend that I would recommend a book it's a good for game design even even the part of the, not publishing but basically the, the writing publishing pitching and publishing can also you can get some tools in there that can help out for game master to enhance their craft yeah I would recommend it too um, I had, when I had originally read it uh, I didn't even know I was gonna ever publish anything but I, I, I was very interested in finding out more about how to run city adventures and things like that I know there are some other books out there like the one book by Paizo on game mastering and stuff that kind of hit on, on a lot of those and even some of the 4E uh, D&D books but for some reason, this one just uh, seemed clearer to me, and I don't know why exactly, but uh, but it did. It it hit what I needed at the time. Information gelled in your mind, and like, oh, this is where to go. Yeah, I I, I found so some of the chapters are a little more abstract than I really wanted, but I found a a number of them had those little tidbit details that that helped things gel. They weren't just abstractions. And I think I would I would agree. There's there's enough here I think for for game masters. Um, I, I'm just looking at the back cover where it says the ultimate resource for gamers, game masters, and designers. I I don't know that it's really for gamers, but for game masters and designers, I, I think I right. definitely for those two groups. Cool. Uh, anything else you guys want to say about the book? Nothing on my on my part. I think uh, I think we discussed it pretty good. Cool. So I am here now with Wolfgang Bauer from Cobalt Quarterly and Open Design and uh, primary author, I guess you could say, for the complete Cobalt Guide to Game Design, which we're discussing uh, this month. Welcome to the back to the show, sir. Oh, I'm glad to be back. Thanks. I, is that the correct way to uh, describe you as the primary author? I think so. I mean, I wrote probably half to two-thirds of the book. Um, I'm certainly not the only author. I mean, when you throw, uh, oh, I don't know, Monty Cook or Ed Greenwood or Rob Hainsu in the list, uh, there's there's got to be like eight or ten authors on this. But, uh, yeah, it was my series. I wrote a lot of them. Yeah, absolutely. Although, and, and you focused on some of the uh, better-known names, but I actually found some of the uh, almost—I don't want to say second tier, but you know, you know, not quite the the big names in gaming. Um, I found some of their uh, chapters um, almost more engaging, and you know, is fresh ideas and fresh advice that we haven't heard a, a thousand times. Absolutely. I mean, the big names. Sometimes you go to them because you know they're going to deliver something great, mm-hmm. and their name is going to bring a reader around and say, "Huh, I wonder what Monty Cook has to say." But uh, the 
I don't know, somewhat less known names. Um, uh, Willie Walsh might be familiar to anybody who read uh, Dungeon Magazine in the 90s. Uh, Colin McComb is familiar to anybody who's played Planescape Torment. Uh, actually, a lot of the Planescape books uh, are his work. They're all really talented people, mm-hmm. and I asked them to write a chapter or an essay uh, because because they're really good at their topics. And mm-hmm. some of the topics they tackled, like uh, Willie Walsh talking about humor in gaming, I mean, it's not an easy topic to handle um, and to describe how it's done. Absolutely, yeah. And, there, and there's some great advice in there uh, throughout the, the whole thing. Uh, before we get too far, why don't we, we back up a little bit and describe sure. for people exactly what is the complete Kobold Guide to Game Design? Well, sure. Uh, this is actually something that I started back in 2009. Uh, there were essays I wrote for, for the web and for backers of open design projects back when. And I put them up, and then at a certain point, somebody said, well, why not just, you know, we it's a pain to go look them all up separately. Uh, why don't you make a little book and, you know, I'll throw a few bucks your way. I said, okay, fine. I'll put the essays under a set of covers. And that was the Kobold Guide to Game Design, Volume 1. Uh, I think that was 2009. Yeah. Uh, and then we did a Volume 2 and a Volume 3. And finally it became obvious that, you know, we could put them in one set of covers and just send it out that way. Um, and it, it is advice for RPG designers and game masters of really fantasy RPGs of every stripe and it just won the Gold Any Award this year mm-hmm. so uh, it's been very well received and we're going to continue to uh, I don't know do something like it we also did one for board games yeah 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 and so um, it started off as just a series on the website yeah, absolutely. It was just, hey, yeah, let me talk about why I'm doing this the way I do it. And, you know, there would be maybe some discussion in the comments and maybe people would just say, thumbs up. Thanks for telling us that. That was interesting. Um, so some essays got <laughs> got a better reaction than others. Um, but the idea was to say, you know, how do we do adventure design? Um, how do we do pitching and publishing, right? I'm like, I'm a new designer. How do I get my stuff published? Um What's you know what's the secret to a successful career in RPG design such as it is, um, and what are some of the problems you're going to run into? I mean, I tried to talk about not just the mechanical elements um, and the story elements, but also some of the uh, life as a freelancer elements, right? Like <laughs> the emotional letdown of. I've turned over my project and I'm really depressed. Well, that's fairly normal, right? You make a huge effort for six months on a creative work. Um, and then at the end of that, it's gone and you're done with it. And it's like, oh, that thing is done. And and people say, well, you know, it was really kind of nice to hear that that's not unusual um, to hit sort of, you know, creative peaks and creative troughs um, and, and what people do about them. Sure. So what are some of the challenges that you find from taking a, a series of articles that were meant to you know, sort of stand alone and, and it sounds like fairly reactionary to some of the things that were going on in, in open design uh, projects yeah. at the time and then turn the that into a cohesive book. organized book? Right. Well, the first book was very much that. It was let's talk about our current ongoing projects. And there are references in some of these essays to like here's our current project and that sort of – here's how we address this. Um, the second and third volume, we tried to sort of 
you know, broaden it a little. We weren't just talking about our ongoing projects. We were talking about design generally and game mastery for that matter. Um, the, the secret to, to a compilation like this is having a killer editor. Uh, Jana Silverstein is the person who came in said, okay, you know, you've got 50 essays here. Um, I'm going to organize them, I'm going to re-edit them, and oh, by the way, Wolfgang, you're going to need to write me A, B, and C because we have some holes, right? Um, So while the designers are responsible for having written this thing, I would give a lot of credit to Jana um, for having edited it into a shape that is uh, accessible and complete um, and feels more like, well, feels more cohesive than... Is a bunch of essays we did on a website, and we slapped them between some covers, right? Um, her work was really crucial. Mm-hmm. So it went from a, a series of disparate web ar- web articles to uh, a series of three volume books yep. to a complete book. Um, and some, I imagine, and I noticed a little bit as I read through, because I actually read a couple of the volumes individually, and then and then reread them in the complete uh, for the book club. Um, and I noticed there were some changes along oh, the yes. way. Oh uh, yes, can, can you discuss that process of, of how things changed and evolved between the three steps of of coming up with this complete book? Well, sure. I mean, some of it was just uh, what you alluded to earlier, right? Where it's like um, we're talking about our particular projects, and we said, well. Uh, in the editing process, let's dial that back and let's try to generalize the case. And we still use examples throughout the book, but there's less of, hey, you remember what we talked about in that forum post? That's all gone away, mm-hmm. right? Um, and there's probably less reference to stuff that's out of print, because even three years ago, stuff goes out of print. Um, and in a couple of cases, it was, I mean, Jenna's not a gamer. She's an awesome editor. But part of what was so valuable about her perspective was she shows up as an editor of fiction. She worked in New York for Bantam and others. Um, and so she said, you know, I get gaming. I've done some gaming, but I don't consider myself a gamer. And I want this to be as accessible as possible. So I get to this section here, and it's like you guys are all talking jargon and code. Uh but the book is meant to be accessible for like relatively new designers, relatively new gamers who don't have 20 years of history in the hobby. So some of it was explain this thing to me, you know, take a few paragraphs and and dig a little deeper and expand on it. Um, so those are some of the changes. The other big change we made, of course, with the complete guide is I said, well, um, let's talk to a couple of people on particular topics like um, – Willie Walsh and humor in gaming, which is something we hadn't addressed. Let's go talk to Mike Stackpole uh, about how to create a new magic system. Um, and I think both of them did did great work on those topics, which aren't in any of the prior volumes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, making sure we covered it. Sure. Uh, and so, and you've kind of alluded to and hinted at this along the way, but but who would you say the book is for? Well, it's really for – when I started it, it was like, well, this is for new game designers or existing game designers who want like to up their game a little bit by hearing from their peers, right? Um, but in practice, what's happened is I've gotten a ton of reviews and feedback saying, well, you know, I really don't plan on publishing anything. That's not 
what I'm after. But I had a great time kind of seeing why you guys do it the way you do it. And I'm a homebrew gamer, and all of this is really fuel for the fire, right? Mm -hmm. So a big part of the audience that I wasn't really expecting is like homebrew players who are cooking up their own scenarios and their own worlds and their own game systems in some cases saying, oh, well, this is a really useful tool, um, and thanks for writing it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's both game masters and and designers who are who are looking to publish. Sure. Now, one of the things, especially in the latter half of the book, I find um, you you very much stand against sort of the 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 casual or amateur designer concept. Um, yeah. If you want, you you sort of go go into if you want somebody to design, you want them to really go wholeheartedly into it and make it their thing and that they're going to do. Uh, but at the same time, if you're trying to make it accessible to the casual reader and the casual designer a little bit. Um, I don't, how do you sort of explain that? Well, I mean, there's a lot of casual design and sort of ad hoc things, and those are okay around the table, right? I mean, we do that stuff, and we call them house rules generally. Um, but if you're really going to like do this professionally, then yeah, I would say by all means, start with your house rules and then build them up and play test the heck out of them and get some feedback that's not from the people you play with every week um, because they're not going to see the holes in it, right? The play testers who you don't even know at a convention um, are going to be a lot more critical and honest probably about flaws and highlights in your work. So you need that other perspective and you need to get out of your little circle of friends and family who are all going to tell you, well, you're doing great. And this is the same in any writing process, right? Fiction writers run into this all the time. Your mom always loves your story. But um, but if you actually want to put it out there and self-publish, um, well, if you want people to pay you money, you need to do mm -hmm. more than here's my cobbled together set of house rules. So, uh, so in that sense, yeah, I'm all for... Be more passionate, be more professional, work harder, do a better job. Uh, we should all hold ourselves to high standards, right? That's, sure. that's easy to, to be in favor of. But, but as to how to make it accessible, I mean, the flip side of this coin is the whole reason for writing a book like this and saying, here's how we do some of it and here's some of the problems we see is to demystify it a little, right? Mm -hmm. There's weird sense sometimes in gaming and game design generally that designers are somehow superhuman and have access to you know tons of secret knowledge and that normal people don't do this well that's not true either right, right. It's like, it, people sit down and they type all day and you know they're at the wizards of the coast offices working hard uh and sending stuff out for playtest and editing and reviewing um that's that's what they do, right? And they they learn from experience, and over time, they get more skills and more more chops. But they had to start somewhere. So the Cobalt Guide to Game Design is kind of a way to say, look, here are some of the things we grapple with. You probably grapple with them, too. Um, if you bear down and are willing to do the playtest and the work, yeah. you can publish your stuff, and it'll be good. You'll find an audience if you if you have some talent and you put in the work. Um, so that's sort of the encouragement to the beginner is, you know, 
it's not a secret society. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a group of people who've committed themselves to it, and that's that's a world of difference. Because when I was growing up, it's like, oh my goodness, Zip Cook, Gary Gygax, these people have secret superpowers, and uh, and eventually. I realized, oh, I, I sent in a proposal and they, they took it. Hey, it's in print. Um, and just realizing that it's possible, I think, is the first step for any game designer. Sure. Uh, now, would you say that there's there's a place for, you know, not everybody has to make a full-time career out of freelance game designer or, you know, getting a job in game design, but there's still a, a place for people under that level of, of I guess, um, effort. <laughs> You look at a ton of the freelancers out there who are doing, uh, you know, AAA work for for Wizards or Paizo or Chaosium or whoever. Um, a bunch of them are lawyers or engineers or IT professionals or whatever. Mm-hmm. They have day jobs and they write this stuff because they love it. And maybe they only publish one or two things a year. That's fine. I would still call them professionals because mm-hmm. they're... They're working their stuff, and they're doing it over years, and they're publishing it um, at a very high level, right? I think the number of people who have a full-time staff job or a freelance-only career is really small. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, I think the freelancers who do it, most of them who do it like part-time, they're doing it because they love it and they enjoy the work. And they love hearing back from people who are playing their stuff. Um, you know, so the financial side may be, it's not unimportant, but it's not important for some freelancers, right? Oh, sure. I mean, you're talking to a teacher. I understand doing it because you love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. it, right? It's yeah. like there are rewards in having done it uh, that, that don't pay the rent. Right. But but that you're still really happy and proud of the work you've done. Yep. So I would say there's there's certainly room for that uh, in RPGs. It's not a field that's overflowing with the big bucks anyway. Kind of teaching, honestly. Yeah. Now, uh, I found uh, early the the first quarter or so of the book to be very philosophy-heavy. Yeah. Uh, and then all of a sudden, I think it was uh, the chapter by Colin McComb. Yeah, basic combat systems. Right, and then that one hits and suddenly, oh, now we're getting a lot of this really crunchy sort of practical, you know, this is how you do it sort of sort of advice. And I'm, I'm curious how you sort of balance the philosophy versus practical advice. Well, <laughs> that's an excellent question. I'm not sure I have a perfectly good answer. <laughs> um, the practical advice is sort of what people show up for at first, I think, when when they say, teach me how to do game design. Often it's, what I really want is I want the spreadsheet with the numbers that will make my adventure, monster book, whatever, like, perfect. And, and game design is something mathematical, but it's not just that. And so... The crunchy chapter is about how to build magic systems or a combat system or design a magic item. Um, address that initial, give me the numbers, that's what I need to know as a game designer. Um, the philosophy I put up front because I'm a little worried that people don't think about 
Like, what do they want out of their design, right? Uh, it's really strange to me sometimes. People say, well, I want to be a game designer. And I ask them, well, you know, what are you, what are you hoping to accomplish? What, what kind of games are you, you looking to create? No, I just want to, like, do it. I'm like, well, you need to have a goal, and and you know, what you, where where are you headed with it? Are you trying to you know create an experience of horror and despair and a deep bleak future, or are you trying to do like uh, I don't know, modern superheroes and full of action? Or I, you know, where where's your genre? Uh, what themes appeal to you? Uh, how do you go about making those themes appeal to other people? It's all a lot fuzzier than the numbers part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you don't wrestle with what are you trying to say as a game designer, what kind of experience are you trying to present to people, um, you know, how do you make it fun, um, then all the numbers in the world aren't going to help you because your game is going to be uh, incoherent or boring or uh, just not compelling enough to pick up and play. Um, so you need both sides. And... There's no neat way to put them like side by side in a book like this um, without just sort of saying, okay, here's a new chapter and we're going to address a very different topic for a while. Mm-hmm. Did yeah. you hit one or the other? I mean, say it again. Did you gravitate or did the, did the readers you were working with? Yeah, I mean, did they. Did you say, oh, well, these crunchy chapters are what I wanted or, you know, this philosophy made me think about something I wasn't considering earlier or was there a preference? I think as we read the first half, um, I personally was looking for more of the the practical stuff. Um, uh, Although it's it's good to have the philosophy as sort of a bedrock in order for that practical stuff to make sense. Yeah, um, and not all, not all the readers necessarily had the same experience I did personally, right? Some of the others really enjoyed the the philosophical elements and what have you. And I found some of the, I mean, even um, was it Keith Baker's? Um, oh, about hard boiled. Yeah, the hard boiled sort of noir sort of uh, stuff. It wasn't necessarily mechanical, but it was sort of you know these are the elements that you need to consider, and it yeah. was it was very concrete. Sort of, I could almost bullet point it and put it on a note card and, and remember this is what I need to do in order to make a hard boiled adventure. Yes. You know, know, I think that practical advice is really, I mean, it's a big chunk of this book. Mm -hmm. It is. Didn't want it to be like the only thing there. Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe that's me trying to say, well, here's my philosophy of game design, and there's going to be six chapters on it in a 50 chapter book. (laughs) Right. Um, But the practical side is just so important. I mean, it's why I hauled in people like Colin McComb to do basic combat mechanics because mm-hmm. he's done it for video games and he's done it for tabletop. It's like, I don't know anybody I trust more to say, okay, you know, here's an outline for a way to build a new system, a new RPG system um, from scratch or, you know, and that sort of brewing directions doesn't cover every case and everything, but wow, it's a whole lot better than, well, I want to do it, and I have no idea where to start. Sure. And the philosophy, I think, set me up for some some success as well. Because as, as I, was, I was reading a lot of that and thinking, okay, when are we going to get to the practical stuff? But as soon as I got to the practical stuff, then with the foundation of the philosophy, all of a sudden I had half-formed game design ideas flowing through my head constantly as I was reading the, the other chapters. Yeah. And so. I'm sort of a, an attempt – I made a very – conscious attempt to like throw in lots of examples as hooks of hey somebody could design this game someday Mm -hmm. i have no intention of necessarily designing that game but like here's a 
here's a concept that illustrates the practical thing we're trying to do. And if you wanted to run with it, you know, go. Mm-hmm. Because I think most people who are drawn to game design are full of ideas and and like once you've latched onto that crystallizing idea, the premise or the practical advice becomes easier to follow. It's like, oh, well, how's, that's how I'd apply it in a noir game. Okay. Um, and it sticks more. Sure. <laughs> I, I'm not a teacher. I wish I had more of a background in, in pedagogy and education. But, um, but the reaction to the essays has mostly been, oh, they're accessible. They actually talk about things that you know, are problems that people deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe they don't follow educational theory, but they're fun to read, so I actually made it through the whole book. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Very good. So why don't we uh, leave people with a little bit of a hint as to, to where you come from, and you know, th- this is typically what we do at the beginning, although you've been on the show enough, I think many listeners are familiar with you, but, you know, as somebody's reading the complete Kobold Guide to Game Design, and you're giving all this sort of definitive advice on how to be a good game designer, they might ask the question, well, who the heck is this guy? <laughs> well, sure, that's just a legit question. Yeah. Uh- yeah, I've been doing uh, fantasy RPG design since uh, since the late 80s. Uh, first at TSR, working at the periodicals department uh, and writing for Al-Kadim and Planescape and those sorts of things. Uh, and then later at Wizards of the Coast, uh, working on Dark Matter and uh, an unpublished Magic the Gathering RPG. And, and now on my own with Kobold Press so, and also with... Paizo Publishing. So I have published with all of the bigger RPG companies uh, and founded my own. So, yeah, I guess the proof is in the publishing. In this case, uh, I, I haven't done a count on my CV, how many adventures and articles and settings I've done, but I just published my latest, my third entire full-formed world called Midgard. Yep. Hardcover now. Yes, it is, and I've got the uh, I've got a, a review copy. I think we're going to be uh, at least discussing it at some point in the future. So, cool, excellent. Well, I hear that it's uh, it's one of those cases where I, I thought I knew it all, and I learned a few more things. I mean, there's always something more to learn, isn't there? There is. Well, world building is its own separate animal, right? Mm-hmm. The game design is about systems and adventures and how to get published. Um, it's not necessarily a world building book, but. Uh, but who knows? Maybe there will be a Cobalt Guide to World Building someday. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, uh, so Andy, where can people find you online? Uh, best place is check me out on Twitter, AWMYHR, or if you want to find some dusty uh, pixels, go to AWMYHR.com and see some of my old writing. Maybe nice. I'll get something new up there soon. <laughs> should definitely. Uh, and Eric, where can people find you? The best way is through Twitter. It's at Eric, E-R-I-C-M, Pack, P-A-Q. Nice. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all we have to discuss today. Be sure to join us next month. And we want to thank the people who joined us for this episode, as well as Wolfgang Bauer, uh, Andy Meyer, and Eric Paquette. And Tracy, I want to thank you. Oh, because, you know, you're awesome, and it's fun getting to hang out with you and, and chat about stuff. Well, and you're awesome, too. That's true, I am. Awesome. <laughs> if people wanted to contact our awesomeness, how would they do that? Uh, they can email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com, or call us on our biz line at 919-BizTome, that's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. 
And as always, show notes are available at thetomeshow.com. And I guess we're going to call that it. We have now all figured out how to be perfect game designers from top to bottom. Yay! I'm on the wall.